Welcome to Future of School, the podcast, where we amplify all the key stakeholder voices in education, students, teachers, parents, policy influencers, entrepreneurs, and more, and engage in meaningful discussions about what it means to create an education system in which all students can reach their unbounded potential. You'll hear diverse perspectives discussing the power and promise of technology, true successes in personalized learning, and what it means to prepare the qualified workforce of tomorrow. Enjoy today's episode. Crisis schooling and online education in America, they're two completely different concepts. Our education system has existed in a certain way for hundreds and hundreds of years, and we see that in schools. We see that with the majority of kids sitting behind desks, using textbooks, and the teacher standing in front of the classroom. This past spring, we had a major disruption to that system. And because of that, it caused this really quick, rapid onset of crisis schooling where kids and teachers were forced to take learning and teaching into their homes. And so that was a major disruption, but it was one that really truly can help us transform to bring our schools into the 21st century. We've known for a long time that technology hasn't been used in widely in schools in our country and that there's a need for it. There's a need for it to prepare kids for life after high school, for careers, for post-secondary institutions, and to achieve their dreams. And so although it came on in, a, in this panic environment, crisis schooling is different than online education. Online education is intentional. There are schools that have been set up for 20 plus years. They train teachers specifically in how to deliver online lessons and engage with students. So because the majority of, our, of Americans didn't have experience with online education, it was really challenging this spring because people defaulted that this crisis schooling was online teaching and online learning when really it was the replication of the traditional system at home through technology. So it's, a, it's an important distinction to make as people look for different options for what their kids are gonna do and where they're gonna teach and what school is gonna look like this year. And if we work together to define these terms and to seek a better understanding, we'll be able to create a new normal for schools that serves and benefits students. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Stick around for our featured interview and more great segments coming up. I'm very excited to welcome our guest today, John Watson. John Watson is the founder of Evergreen Education Group, an organization which has studied K-12 online, blended, and hybrid learning for over 20 years. Evergreen organizes the Digital Learning Collaborative, a membership group made up of schools, nonprofits, state agencies, and providers, and they come together to be able to share and learn best practices and solve for some of the challenges with digital education. Uh, the Digital Learning Collaborative also organizes the DLC's main event, Digital Learning Annual Conference. They help provide input on a conference that brings uh, teachers, educators, and administrators together to learn and expand school transformation. John, welcome here today. Thank you, Amy. Thanks for having me. John, we've been talking about distance education for many years. You and I, we've worked together off and on throughout the years, and we've seen the evolution of it, 
before the pandemic hit. So one of the things we've talked about is that although online education is not new to America, online learning is new to most Americans since the COVID-19 hit. Does this statement ring true to you and your work with the organizations at the DLC? It absolutely does. At the beginning, the very beginning of the pandemic, even before the uh, schools were beginning to close, uh, I, I got a call from a, a reporter from a national news organization, and, and uh, she said that we'd like to ask, uh, ask you if schools have the tools to be able to shift to remote learning. And my answer was schools have had the tools to shift to remote learning for more than 20 years, uh, but there's still not the widespread understanding of instructional strategies, of different online and hybrid and remote learning models. There's not a good understanding among teachers, students, and parents broadly about how online learning really works, especially around best practices. And a big part of the reason for that is even though there's hundreds of thousands of students who attend online school every day, and I'm talking pre-pandemic, uh, that is still a very, very small number. It's less than 1% of all students in the country. If you think about the number of students who are accessing an online course, that's considerably more, but it's still probably under 5% or so. So when you think about true online schooling, online courses, it's been limited to a very small percentage of students and teachers and parents to this point. So how did it, how did it impact you or your work when the pandemic hit this spring, when parents and teachers and administrators started to say, oh, this, this online schooling is terrible. This, you know, distance education is the worst when, when the negative connotations were being made about what they were experiencing. It's been a major challenge to constantly and consistently draw the distinctions between what's happened in the spring and what's ongoing now and calling it crisis schooling as a uh, future of school has or remote learning or emergency remote learning. Use a variety of terms to distinguish from online learning in the sense that good online learning, whether it's a course or a school, it is an instructional strategy that is typically planned and implemented over multiple years. Online teachers consistently tell us that it takes them several years to get really comfortable teaching in the online environment. The same way that a, a, a new teacher in a brick and mortar school will typically say, yeah, it took me a couple of years to get really comfortable teaching in the classroom. It's no different. There's no way that you could expect or should expect even an experienced brick and mortar teacher to shift into the online learning environment and be able to teach effectively within a weekend or a week or two, which is what so many teachers were asked to do in the spring. Yeah, yeah, great point. Yeah, at Future of School, we came out with this term we picked up along the way called crisis schooling to represent what was happening this spring when brick and mortar schools very quickly transitioned learning environments to homes for teachers and kids so that they could keep that continuity of learning. Um, and then I had a moment where, um, you know, I, I had seen one too many memes about, you know, I'm the homeschool mom that's trying to balance every, and now I'm a homeschool mom. I never thought I'd be a homeschool mom. It really made me reflect on the 3.4 million homeschool families in our country that actively choose to homeschool their children. And I saw the phraseology getting confused. So it, it's an important message 
to be had because there is a you know 20 plus year history of online schools and programs in our country in the K-12 space. And like I said, online learning isn't new to America. It's just new to most, to many Americans. And so there's a great opportunity. John, why do you think there are so many different terms for new and different ways of learning? There's virtual education, there's online learning, we have all of these different terms. And is sharing definitions for those terms, is that something that's important right now? I suspect there's lots of different terms because the shift to online, digital, blended, virtual, hybrid, just like you're talking about, all these different terms. Well, that reflects that a lot of these schools, courses, programs, et cetera, all bubbled up from different states, different school districts, different charter schools, private schools, all these different areas, elements, people were developing some of the same ideas over the last 20 years. This hasn't been a highly centralized movement where one or a few people or organizations came up with a new way of learning online and put forth, this is the way for it to be done. In fact, it's been this growth, this organic growth coming from so many different places. And many of those people and organizations chose slightly different names. Together with that is the fact that the federal government has had a very limited role in the online and blended and hybrid learning that has happened, especially pre-pandemic. And so part of what that means is they weren't doing things like surveys or reporting that might have created common definitions or definitions and terms that a lot of schools and people would have to adhere to, for instance, to qualify for federal funding in, in some form or fashion. So those basic elements, I think, have led to all the different terms being used. Yeah, good, very good point. With your background and knowledge of education in general, what do you think that this year is going to hold for the majority of schools in our country? I think nobody knows what the next year is going to hold for the majority the of right schools answer. <laughs> in our country. And, I, and I, uh, I immediately question anybody who comes forth and says, this is what it's gonna look like. Uh, first of all, because nobody knows what the path of the pandemic is gonna look like. Secondly, because a school in Miami may look very different than a school in Montana in the coming months, in part because it seems like what we're seeing is different regional patterns around how the pandemic is hitting based on different elements, including density and weather. Uh, we, we saw early on the impacts mostly in northern areas, then it shifted mostly to southern areas. It seems at least possible that it's going to shift back to northern areas again. What that suggests is that we're going to have different rolling school closures happening all around the country, but in pockets different than what happened in the spring when essentially every school in the country was uh, shut down in terms of physical schooling in a very, very short period of time. So I think we're going to see just a lot of different approaches, a lot of different uh, realities on the ground for different districts. And we're going to see a need for schools and districts to be extremely flexible in their responses. Great. You work with a lot of early adopters, both you know individuals and organizations that have been embracing innovation. They've been moving towards new models. Um, what role do you think that they 
are playing and also can play in helping to support this environment of ambiguity that most schools find themselves in. We've seen over the last several months a, a lot of very positive developments in terms of the way that teachers and school leaders and district leaders and others have responded to the need to shift to remote. Having said that, however, one of the areas uh, of frustration that I've seen and, and heard from a number of people is that it feels like there are too many instances where the people and organizations that truly know how to do online or hybrid learning well have not been invited into the discussions about how states can be most supportive of schools and districts, how school leaders can be supportive of teachers, how teachers can be supportive of students, how schools can help families. You think about very, very simple ideas. For instance, if you're a school that's shifted to remote or might have to shift to remote in the fall, a very simple thing that you can help a family with is, how do you now think about scheduling? For instance, if you're talking about a young student, a second or third grader, let's say, how do you think about scheduling your day such that you're bringing some consistency into that home learning environment? Well, this is something that online schools have been thinking about for 20 years. They know how to help parents think about these issues. And yet what we see is not enough of those online learning experts being invited in to say, hey, how do you do this? Because I guarantee you, they've got the materials, they've got the thinking such that they can, and, and they're very, very willing to share. Uh, they just haven't been asked to help and provide that expertise nearly at the level that they can. So that is the one area of frustration that we've seen. Yeah, and to piggyback off of that, I also think for me, one of the challenges as a former you know, classroom in-person teacher and online teacher and longtime supporter of different ways of teaching and learning, um, one of the challenges is that it's this trying to replicate, trying to take, okay, this is what we did in, this, in our brick and mortar school. We did this and we're going to take it and put it now. This is what remote learning is. The kids are going to be in front of the computer, same amount, you know, they're going to have to meet the seat time requirement. They have these, the, the policies stay the same without a recognition that it, it's different. It's a different learning environment and it's a different model of education. And I don't fault schools or the, for that because it's, it's new, it's so new to them, but there's a lot to be learned and gleaned to your point from uh, schools that have been, you know, schools that have training programs for online teachers, blended learning schedules that are out there. And, um, and, I, and I think it's also incremental. It's, it's what can schools do this year? And then what can they do the next year? And are they gonna be committed to long-term transformation to bring their schools into the future to be able to ask some of the hard questions around, it is the way that we teach most effective for our students. Are we using the best content? There's a lot of questions that will require some, you know, foundational shifts. So, um, yeah, I I see what you're saying, and I and I like to add to that because it's a it's a complicated situation. So, I totally agree with what you're saying. That if you look at the history of of online learning, both at the K-12 and the post-secondary level. In the earliest days, the initial push was very much what you're talking about. It was, okay, we lecture in a high school classroom or in a college classroom. How are we now going to shift that lecture to be online? But then over years, what we saw was 
the experienced online schools, online teachers, online courses, they would start to rethink that approach. And instead of saying, okay, how do we shift a lecture to be online? They would think about, okay, what are we trying to accomplish in our various modes of instruction? And you start with that in a brick and mortar environment. And, and again, I'll start for, for this conversation at the level of maybe high school and college. There's a lot of lecturing. There's a lot of use of textbooks. In science classes, there might be a lot of use of labs, manipulatives, things like that. The initial step was, how do we do all those things online? The next step was, wait a second, let's think about what our instructional goals are for each of those things and for the course or for the school. And now let's rethink about how do we meet those goals in the online environment, not how do we mimic old ways of doing things. That's the trajectory that we've seen in online schools and courses over the last 20 years. That's the trajectory that we see just about every teacher that shifts from a brick and mortar environment to an online environment going through. The issue is those shifts happen over two or three years, not over two or three days, which is how too many schools were asked to make that transition. Yeah, absolutely. Big challenges. Um, talk to our listeners about the, um, the Resilient Schools Project. It's something that I, I think is, is fascinating and I'm really excited to be able to be a part of. And I, I would love your perspective on the origin of it and what, what is going to be able to be accomplished this year through it. The Resilient Schools Project is based on a couple of foundational concepts. One is the fact that, as I referenced earlier, nobody knows exactly how the next school year is going to play out. And so schools and districts need to be flexible and adaptive and constantly thinking about, okay, how do we address this new thing that is happening? So that's number one. Number two, there's, there are experts around online learning, as we've talked about, but there's no experts in how do we think about a situation where the school is open this week and it may need to be closed physically next week. Nobody's been through that before. So the idea is to gather school district leaders in a collaborative professional learning network such that they can learn from each other as they're going through these rolling school closures and all these challenges that we've talked about. The idea of resilience, we borrow from ecology and the idea that ecological systems that are resilient are able to bounce back from disturbances more quickly than systems that are inflexible, unable to change. Final thought on this is you and I are both based in Colorado. Well, a, a while back I heard a, a story about a set of hospitals, major medical centers in Colorado, that in the early days of the pandemic, they realized they were all dealing with the same issues. New studies coming in about how to best treat patients, new guidance coming in from the CDC every few days. And individually, every one of these medical centers was trying to think through these, these issues and they were really struggling with it. And then they realized, well, wait a second, all of the chiefs of, of the medical staffs are dealing with these same issues. And so they started getting together for a morning phone call. Every morning at 8 a.m., they would get together and talk about their common issues. That is the same idea that we have with the Resilient Schools Project. We have 13,000 districts, 100,000 schools across the country. They are all dealing with a similar set of issues. Instead of every one of those school and district leaders thinking through this in their own silos, we are working to bring a group of them together to be able to work through some of these issues together and support each other. Very exciting. I'm looking forward to, to being a co-pilot with you in that project and supporting schools in a way that 
has the potential to have a framework behind it for the schools down the road that, are, that will be ready for that transformation at a later date. Any final thoughts on crisis schooling versus online education as we wrap up, John? I'm hopeful that in the coming year, the coming school year, we'll be able to get past the narrative that happened at the end of the last school year, which is, as you referenced earlier, wow, that didn't work very well. Online learning, turns out it doesn't work very well. That There was too much of that narrative at the end of the past school year with the work that we're doing and thrilled to be in partnership with Future of School on the Resilient School Project and other work as well. We're hoping to be able to shift that narrative partially for the trajectory of online learning, but more importantly, for all the students and schools in the country that are trying to do their best to adapt to this really challenging situation. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time and your insights. You have a lot to share and a lot of passion for education, and we look forward to having you on an upcoming podcast to share more with us on the Resilient Schools Project. Thank you, John. Okay. Thanks for having me on today. The first online school launched in 1995 before today's college graduates were even born. But online learning, blended programs, and tech integration in K-12 classrooms are still new to most Americans. In 2020, leaders, educators, parents, and students alike are experiencing the most profound transformation of our K-12 education system ever. Online learning is here to stay, and it is time to shift from crisis schooling the haphazard type that results from poor planning plus a pandemic to effective remote education. Hey guys, I'm Ethan Rich. Uh, I just recently graduated from the University of Central Florida with my BFA in theater. I'm also a scholarship recipient from the future of school. Uh, my last semester was definitely a different one. I got uh, thrown into the online classes, which I had already uh been well equipped to uh, participate in but the, a lot of the world and and the country especially where everyone started doing online classes and i found that it really works well for efficiency uh it being in able to do zoom meetings uh and whatever group meetings that you have virtually uh not only for safety reasons during covid but uh for efficiency of uh getting topics out and learning new things or uh, in a business setting uh, being able to figure out uh, what's on your to-do list and getting that accomplished and ev letting everyone go into their own groups and figure their stuff out and then present it to the group. I think that's a really good thing to learn while you're in school uh, that helps you when you get out. Um, and for me, for online learning, it's... Uh, when I was in high school, it for me was a chance to explore theater and acting in a way uh, that was uh, not, uh, wires weren't crossed with all the rest of the subjects to learn in school. And it allows people to really focus on what motivates them the most and how they can really impact the world. So uh, I guess that would be my advice to everyone is, is do some online classes and, and find out what, what, how it works for you in a way that you can change and make the impact uh, in your community and in the world that you want to. You're listening to Future of School, the podcast. Next up, today's five and five teacher interview. Our guest today is Chuck Poole. 
Chuck is a passion-driven educator with over 20 years of classroom experience. This year, Chuck will be teaching middle school at Herbert Hoover School. In addition to being a teacher, he is a public speaker, author, influencer, and a bright light in the education community across our country. Perhaps most incredibly, he does all of this without coffee. Welcome, Chuck. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Oh, it is great to be here. Thank you, Amy. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to come and chat, and I'm excited to, uh, to talk. And you're right, I do without coffee. I've never actually even tasted coffee. People think that's weird, but um, it's the truth. I've never even sipped it, uh, even a little bit. I don't think it's weird. I think it's incredible that you've been able to achieve everything you have without, without the high dose of caffeine. So kudos to you. Thanks. So let's jump right in. Chuck, what was the first experience that opened your eyes to the power and potential of blended and online learning? Um, the first experience that kind of opened it and, and made me realize the power of online or uh, blended learning actually had nothing to do with content, surprisingly enough. Um, it had more to do with relationships. Uh, just a really quick story. I had a student a few years ago who uh, was extremely quiet. And I know that as teachers, we have a lot of uh, students that are very quiet or introverted. And they're the students that may not want to answer questions or they avert their eyes when we are looking around to call on somebody type of a thing. Um, and I had this student, she was extremely quiet. She was a great artist, um, but she never talked in class. And we decided we were going to do um, a a version of blended learning where we would flip the classroom, right? So um, what I did was I actually had the class um, online the night before, and then we were going to discuss it. And interestingly enough, we did it for three days, and I didn't require the students to put their, their actual names in. They could just put a screen name in. And this one screen name had the most intelligent and, and awesome comments that I had ever really experienced in the, in the chat. So um, after the three-day experiment of this, I kind of came in and I said, all right, I just need to know who is this person? Your comments are amazing. Uh, it is fantastic. I am just so proud to have you in this class. And she beamed with, with, um, with pride and she actually raised her hand for the first time in my class and said, you know, that was me, Mr. Poole. And uh, after that class, she came up to me and she said, thank you for allowing this. This was a, a higher level class, but she had come up to me and she said, I just want to thank you for allowing me to share my voice. I don't like to talk in public very much. And you gave me the opportunity to talk anonymously through, um, through this experience. And I, I felt that um, it really made a difference in, in how I was learning. And I was blown away by that. And it just showed me the power of really being able to impact students like that, uh, among other ones as well. But that particular piece really gave me a, a glimpse into the power of what blended learning can do. Fantastic. We both know that there's a lot of misnomers and misperceptions about online learning in the K-12 space. Mm. What's one thing that you think people struggle with when conceptualizing online and blended learning in K-12 schools? Um, I, I think one big thing that kind of leads into two is that they feel often that they have to um, almost run an online learning piece the same way they would run it in person. And, and it's very different. Uh, you're, not, you're not necessarily going to uh, teach in a blended learning style the same exact way you would teach when in person. It, it's the reason why it's blended, right? So you don't have to mimic what you would do in your classroom. Um, and one thing that I realized was uh, the reason why people were struggling with that is because they felt they had to be tech savvy in order to make this happen. 
Um, and I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that, like, I don't think you have to be uh, tech savvy or knowledgeable about all these tech tools in order to, um, to carry out blended learning. Uh, good teaching is good teaching. And if, if you are passionate about um, affecting the lives of kids and their learning, you're going to do a great job. Great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. What's one strategy that you think every teacher should use in their classroom? I think, and this is a strategy that I just kind of made up, but uh, it's called the emoji box. Uh, I base it off of um, if you've ever been to an airport and you're leaving and it asks for your feedback and it has smiley faces and you can smack one of them, happy, sad, angry. Um, I've created an emoji box, which basically is a shoe box with three slots and it has a picture of a happy face, a not so happy face and a, and, and a you know kind of confused face. And every day after my class, I have little wooden chips and it's completely anonymous. But what the students do is they, as they leave, they drop one of the wooden chips in one of those slots to let me know uh, how they felt class was. If they really loved it, if it was so-so, I could probably do a better job or if they were completely confused. And then the next day I will then approach them and say, hey, we had a lot of people that were confused. So let's take a pause and let's learn a little bit about why. So it's a good way to kind of get really quick feedback um, on students and you can do that online as well, just by simply putting up uh, you know, some emojis, there's some different ways of doing it. But I found in the middle school, it was awesome for a very simple way to get students to give me feedback on the class in real time as they were leaving. Great, so are you gonna use that this year when you start off in the, in the remote setting? Yes, we are. I, I'm, I have it all set up and ready to go. Uh, and it's pretty cool um, because I can do it whether I'm live streaming or if it's set up in a way where uh, I'm using either like a Google Doc or, or something like that. So I have it set up um, both ways, but I'm, I'm excited because it's been something that the students have actually really loved. And one key thing is that it's anonymous, right? So um, I'll be using it as we start online and then transitioning it when we head back. Awesome. Chuck, when you consider what the future of school should look like for students, what comes to mind to you? Um, I think that it should be in, in, in an ideal world, uh, essentially individualized learning with collaboration and input built in for students, right? So I think uh, I'm a big person on feedback. So I have my students, like I said, with the emoji box, give feedback in that way, but we also meet every Friday and we uh, sit down and the students evaluate me. Uh, and I started out by giving them a simple checklist of what they can do with comments. Again, totally anonymous that they will drop in a box and then we'll chat about it the next day. But um, I think that by, I found that by allowing them to evaluate me as their teacher, it gives them a little bit more ownership and trust so that we're building the classroom together. And I kind of think that um, considering what the future of school should look like, it should, I believe it should be almost like a collaboration in a community that you build so that we as teachers can facilitate learning in such a way that it could be even more effective for students. Well said. Thanks. My last question for you is what, what one big dream do you have about education that you would love to turn into a reality? I think, and this one actually falls more um, towards the teachers, I believe, because I, I think my one big dream uh, and I'm kind of trying to work towards that even a little bit now, but is to uh, make sure that every teacher, whether they're in my building or they're around the world, that they feel valued, appreciated, and they're um, 
they're essentially offered the resources that they need to succeed in every way. So that way, um, frustrations and overwhelm can obviously lessen. Now, I know there's a lot of um, a lot of different ways or a lot of different things that have to happen in order for that to to occur. But if I was if I was to say this is my dream and I want to work towards it, it's really to um, to really show teachers and make teachers feel that they are appreciated, that they are valued, and that their work is making even a bigger difference than they might realize. Because then, um, once that's in place, the impact on the students will continue, of course, and can even be greater um, overall. Great. Thank you so much, Chuck, for sharing your insights with us today and your dreams and visions for the future of school. Of course. Uh, it's been an honor. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm excited to um, continue to hear what you guys are going to talk about soon. Thank you for listening to Future of School, the podcast. To learn more about Future of School, including our student scholarship program, innovative educator prize, and other efforts to highlight and accelerate purposeful innovation in schools, visit our website, futureof.school, follow us on Twitter at futureof underscore school, or connect with us on Facebook or LinkedIn.